fan of genre television, there was a time when the most important show on TV was Babylon 5. The show started airing, without a lot of fanfare it has to be said, on Channel 4 at 6pm on Monday evening on the 16th of May 1994. As usual for TV shows back then, there was very little prior knowledge that this was occurring. Maybe a small blurb in TV Zone or Starburst, and Babylon 5 even appearing on Channel 4 was a surprise generally. See, at the time, Channel 4 was the edgy channel. They heard foreign art house movies with lots of nudity and cult classics like Brazil or Something Wicked This Way Comes. However, the BBC had, by this point, had a lot of success with the cult TV strand over on BBC Two, where old shows like The Invaders, Star Trek, Buck Rogers, Battlestar Galactica and Mission Impossible rub shoulders with newer fur like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the various Star Trek sequels and spin-offs Roswell and Space Precinct. Babylon 5 was Channel 4's opening salvo in poaching that audience, a move that would lead to the various Stargate shows and even Star Trek Enterprise appearing on the channel. Channel 4 kicked off its airing schedule of B5 with Midnight on the Firing Line, the first proper episode of the first season, rather than airing the pilot movie The Gathering. Channel 4 would later say this wasn't a conspiracy, rather they didn't have a slot for it at that time. The pilot would finally air on the 9th of October, after the first season completed its initial screening on the 3rd of that month. I think Channel 4 may be telling us porkies though, as I truly believe the false reputation of the pilot not being very good played a part in their decision. Something else that also has a reputation of not being very good is the first season of Babylon 5 itself. I have to say I've never agreed with that sentiment, as compared to the first seasons of Star Trek, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and especially Voyager, Babylon 5 has a first season that is remarkably consistent and entertaining. Are there episodes that are better than others? Most definitely. But to write the whole season off as not very good is simply parroting the hive mind mentality. Now, I loved Babylon 5 when it first aired. I even taped those early episodes as I was at work at that time back then. I kept those tapes for ages, re-watching the episodes often. Midnight on the Firing Line is, I think, a great first episode, and is a perfectly fine substitute for not having seen the pilot. Every character has an introduction in a way that doesn't feel forced if you have seen the original movie, and it looks a lot better than the pilot with better costumes and sets, or better lighting at any rate. However, Channel 4, perhaps not realising what they had bought, erred this episode uncut, complete with two profanities and some violence. Whilst tame by today's standards, this quickly came under scrutiny. See, at the time, British broadcasters were at one of those periodic times in history where the media and then bandwagon-jumping politicians were decrying TV as the source of all aberrant behaviour. Questions were being raised about the amount of violence on television, and Babylon 5, airing in this early evening slot, became an easy target. Channel 4, being overly sensitive, started taking out the scissors, leaving some episodes almost nonsensical in their edits. One episode, TKO, about mixed martial arts, was only screened at 10.35 in the evening due to its content. Still, 
This didn't affect the overall enjoyment of the show, which demonstrates just how good Babylon 5 was that it could stand up to this level of abuse. The main cast for season 1 were Michael O'Hare as Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, Claudia Christian as Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova, Jerry Doyle as Chief Michael Garibaldi, Richard Biggs as Dr. Stephen Franklin, Andrea Thompson as Psycho resident telepath Talia Winters, Mira Furlan as Mimbari Ambassador Delenn, Peter Jurassic as Centauri Ambassador Londo Malari, Andreas Katsoulas as Narn Ambassador Jakar, Bill Mumi as Mimbari Aide Lanier, Stephen First as Centauri Aide Via Cotto, and Caitlin Brown as Narn Aide Natoff. The most controversial cast member here was the most prominent. O'Hara as Sinclair was considered wooden and bland as the lead, again an opinion I've never agreed with. Sinclair was a tad stiff, but I always thought that was a deliberate character trait. Sinclair was a diplomat and politician, and even though he was a fighter pilot, as his family had been for many generations, he really came into his own as a thoughtful man, quicker to solve problems with intelligence and reason rather than his fists. This made a pleasant change from the two-fisted heroes of other shows. Whilst smart wasn't necessarily looked down on as a quality of US TV heroes, we'd already had Jean-Luc Picard and Lieutenant Columbo, it didn't seem to be something that was emphasised either. Compare Gil Gerard's meat-headed portrayal of Buck Rogers to a hers more sedate Sinclair, and then ask who you'd rather have in command. It's not that Sinclair didn't have a temper, he did, and when he got angry feathers flew, but it wasn't his go-to stance. One of the things Babylon 5 was most famous for was its infamous story arc. Creator of the show, Joe Michael Straczynski, was heavily influenced by Lord of the Rings, World War II and history repeating itself. He also liked the British approach to genre television, hell, television generally, whereby events from previous episodes would come back to bite our heroes on the ass. The show he generally referred to when making these comparisons was Blake 7, a show he felt benefited from having one creative voice throughout its first season. Still, JMS felt that this could be improved upon. Even heavily serialised shows like Blake 7 were written from the beginning outwards. Events were brought back and referred to after the fact. But what if the overall plan was mapped out from the start? Could events be foreshadowed as well as backwards compatible? Wouldn't this also have a knock-on effect on the cost of a show? If you knew an actor would be needed later, or a prop, or set, you could film these scenes or book the actor early on to save on money or availability issues. Elements of this had already been seen. The Ragesh 3 situation, a development that opened the show in the very first episode, was referred to numerous times afterwards, both in dialogue and in subtler ways, such as background news reports and newspaper headlines. However, the foreshadowing aspect would be developed over a longer period of time, and would only really be noticed on subsequent reviewings of the series. To this end, all the characters in Babylon 5 have an arc. Sinclair's arc is the most interesting in the season 1, and really comes to the fore in And the Sky Full of Stars, the season's 8th episode. Whilst hints had been dropped about Sinclair before, notably in the pilot, the full extent of his involvement in the Earth-Mimbari War, and his significance to Babylon 5, really starts being hinted at in this episode. Sinclair was at the Battle of the Line, Earth's last-ditch effort to repel the Minbari, a war Earth was not winning. Suddenly, and without warning, after interrogating Sinclair, the Minbari surrendered. This was a definite cat-pigeon situation, as the Minbari were creaming us. 
Later, when a commander for Babylon 5 was being sought, the Mimbari requested approval over the station's commander. Despite a lengthy list of far more suitable candidates, the Mimbari would only approve Sinclair. Nobody knows why, apart from Delenn, and she's not speaking. And the Sky Full of Stars is a nice, tense and important episode, showcasing her admirably. It's definitely one of the more important of the early shows, and an indicator that Babylon 5 was going to be different. The episodes prior to this were more of a mixture of standalone adventures and character pieces. After Midnight on the Firing Line, which introduced us to the long-standing animosity between the Narn and the Centauri, Soul Hunter was more standard fur, giving us a glimpse at the wanderers that seemed to pop by Babylon 5 on a regular basis. Born to the Purple shows us that Londo is an old romantic, and the Parliament of Dreams gives us more background to Sinclair, introducing his on-again, off-again relationship with Julia Nixon's Catherine Sakai. Mind War is the biggest episode in retrospect, as it introduces the idea of an ancient alien race that is almost supremely powerful, and gives us our first look at the Psycor. Of these early shows, only Infection can be considered a failure, with even guest star David McCallum unable to save it from mediocrity. The other episodes, especially in retrospect, do a marvellous job of introducing us to Babylon 5's political spectrum, the alliances and enemies, and the universe in general. As with all wars, there are still humans and Minbari who resent each other. The Narn hate the Centauri from years of oppression. The President of Earth is now very pro-aliens, where there is strong anti-alien sentiment emerging on Earth, with a keep-Earth-for-Earthmen attitude proving to be a strong movement. The Narn have emerged as a strong military power after years of subjugation and long to flex their newly acquired muscles, whilst Londo longs for a return to the glory days of the Centauri Empire when they bestrode the stars as a colossus. These are all elements that will play out as the series progresses. Garibaldi's arc won't become as obvious until later on. In this first batch of episodes, and indeed the first season, Garibaldi is a recovering alcoholic who has only been given the plum position as Babylon 5 security chief because of his friendship with Sinclair. One of the things the show is quite good at setting up is that, for all its difficulties, Babylon 5 is a highly sought-after position, and Sinclair is frequently run ragged by the demands of his job. Sinclair needed someone he could trust in the security position, which is why he called him Garibaldi. Garibaldi is a bit of a loose cannon, but he does follow orders and he's good at what he does. He's addicted to Looney Tunes cartoons and likes to tinker with machinery. In one of the most blatant examples of product placement until Eva Green and Daniel Craig would compare watches in Casino Royale, the episode Eyes has he and Linear build a vintage 1992 motorcycle. TKO reveals that he's a big boxing fan, both indicators that Garibaldi is as blue collar as they come. Throughout the first season, he also develops a romantic interest in telepath Talia Winters, an on-screen development that led to actors Doyle and Andrea Thompson marrying in real life. Likewise, Susan Ivanova, who did not feature in the pilot, ended up being one of the breakout characters in the first season. Susan is Russian and has a deep loathing of the Psycor because of how they treated her mother, an extremely low-level telepath. Susan is snarky, and Claudia Christian frequently makes a lot of her comedic lines through sheer force of personality. She hates mornings, can't operate without a cup of coffee, and has something of a problem committing to people. We will later learn that Susan is also a low-level telepath, something she is determined to keep secret due to her feeling about the psycor. Christian was a breath of fresh air in the first season, adding a lightness of touch to some of the episodes, but also capable of delivering dramatically when necessary. 
Her biggest episode in season one was the otherwise risible TKO, where a rabbi, played by Theodore Bikel, comes to Babylon 5 to help Ivanova sit Shiva for her dead father. Ivanova's B-plot in that episode makes up for the rest of it being rather tedious. For the time, though, Ivanova was a very daring character, with the implication that she was bisexual, although this would only really be explored in season two. Delenn, the Mimbari ambassador, is quite an enigmatic character in the first season. She knows more than she's letting on about Sinclair's missing memory, and her most prominent episode in the first season is Warpra, which tackles systemic racism. Delenn is more of a constant presence in the first season. Unlike Londo or Jakar, she doesn't really get a focused episode per se, but Mira Ferlan does lovely things with the character, making Delenn a wonderfully spiritual figure, but also someone who can kick all the ass when provoked. Of course, the true stars of the show were Jakar and Londo. As with all the Babylon 5 characters, they had a story arc, but these two were probably the most interesting of them all. Jakar starts the series full of bluster and swagger. The Nard have emerged from years of persecution as aggressors and are determined to make their mark in the universe. He's a slightly comedic presence in the first shows, obsessed with having sex with human women, often three at a time, and his bantering with Londo is a highlight. The Parliament of Dreams is an excellent early Jakar episode, in which Jakar and his aide Natoth much thwart an assassination plot on his life. He demonstrates a deeper side in Mind War when he warns Sinclair's lover, Catherine Sakai, about the dangers of a particular area of space, foreshadowing the big bad yet to come, and a spiritual side in By Any Means Necessary, where he must perform an important religious ceremony, but is being thwarted by a petty and vindictive Londo. Londo is also played for laughs in the early shows, but he has a darker, more melancholic side, only enhanced by Peter Jurassic's excellent performance. Midnight on the Fiery Line establishes relationship with the Nern and his longing for Centauri's past glories. It also postulates the question, how far will he go to recapture the past? Something that will prove increasingly prescient as the show progresses. Born to the Purple shows Londo's romantic side, something emphasised in The Warper, where he helps a young Centauri couple, one of whom is Danica McKellar, marry for love rather than the traditional Centauri practice of marrying for wealth, status or power. He takes naive Mimbari aid Lanier under his wing in The Quality of Mercy, introducing him to gambling and strip joints, and shows his nasty side when he purchases a religious symbol Jakar needs to perform an important spiritual ceremony in By Any Means Necessary. After And the Sky Full of Stars, the series really proves the naysayers wrong, with a run of episodes as strong as anything the show would ever do. Death Walker features Sarah Douglas as a Dilgar war criminal, who nations are falling over themselves to pardon as her race has found a way to make people immortal. It raises interesting questions about how far you are willing to go to forgive even the most heinous crimes, if you can profit from them, but never forgets to be entertaining. Believers has Dr. Franklin come up against a religious sect that refuses to allow their dying son to be operated on, even though it's a simple procedure, as it goes against their belief system. Franklin disobeys them and Sinclair's orders to save the child, to devastating effect. Survivors isn't great, but is important to Garibaldi's arc, and by any means necessary is one of my favourites. Babylon 5 was one of the first shows to acknowledge that all these wonderful toys the heroes have need building and maintaining, and this episode features the dock workers who perform these tasks on Babylon 5 go on strike after overwork and underpay leads to the death of a crew member. 
There's some poor acting in places. Actor John Snyder really overplays his role as the mediator sent to sort the strike out, for example. But otherwise, this is a great episode. It really shows Sinclair trapped between a rock and a hard place, juggling the strike, the union's demands, the demands of the station, and trying to keep the peace between Jakar and Londo, as he becomes more and more frazzled and tired-looking as the episode progresses. His solution is one of the most satisfying of the series, but unlike other shows of this kind, it will come back to bite him on the arse later. Signs and Portents is the next major art-related episode, in that it's the first appearance of the enigmatic and supremely punchable Mr. Morden. This is all rather innocuous in places, but incredibly important in hindsight, and unlike some other ARC episodes, like Are the Skyfall of Stars or the upcoming Babylon Squared, it never forgets to be utterly gripping. The final third of the first season may not have episodes that reach the heights of the middle section, but there's still some damn fine examples of genre telly. David Warner comes to the station for Grail as a man seeking the well, Holy Grail, and whilst it's not one of the better episodes, it still sheds some fascinating light on Mingbari culture. Eyes has Sinclair's decisions come to haunt him when he's under investigation from Earth Force. This episode is hindered by a moustache-twirling performance from Gregory Martin, son of Beatles producer George Martin, trivia fans, as Colonel Ari Ben Zane. To counter this, there's a very understated performance from Geoffrey Coombs as Zane's psychor assistant, that does a really good job of showing us that not all Psycops are Nazis. Just most of them. It's also very important to the arc, showing us Earth's increasingly belligerent anti-free movement of alien stance. Brexit, anyone? Legacies was a great episode, showing us the Earth-Mimbari war from the Mimbari point of view, and how some of them still hold a grudge over the surrender, the reason for which having never been disclosed. The two-part Voice in the Wilderness came about when JMS was asked to provide another episode that could be Frankenstein together to be a straight-to-video movie after the pilot achieved a small measure of success in the home rental department. Even with this commercial idea at its heart, it still manages to be a cracking pair of episodes and sets up the importance of the supposedly dead planet that Babylon 5 orbits, Mimbari religious figure Dral, and a figure from Garibaldi's past who will come to prominence in later seasons. All of this leads to arguably the most important episode of season one, Babylon Squared. From the pilot on, the mystery of what happened to Babylon 4 has been teased, and here we find out that its disappearance is due to the station becoming unstuck in time. Babylon 5's personnel must rescue the crew before it disappears for good. All of these temporal time shenanigans are very similar to Star Trek's Yesterday's Enterprise, but B5 managed to put its own spin on things, giving us glimpses of the future, the past, and teasing character events that have yet to play out. It does lean too heavily into the arc, often featuring dialogue that is nothing but exposition, but it's important and entertaining, and you can't really ask for more than that from an arc episode. The penultimate episode of the first season, The Quality of Mercy, could have been a throwaway story before the big finale, but actually ends up being far more important than it seems. Dr. Franklin finds an unlicensed doctor working in Down Below, B5's less than salubrious lower decks, where the homeless and infirm live. Initially dismissing her as a quack, Franklin learns that she has an alien device that can transfer her life energy to others, but at the cost of killing its host if used incorrectly. It's another pretty decent Franklin episode, highlighting his arrogance, a character trait that will lead to problems in Season 3, but it's more important for the alien device that will come in useful in the future. 
the season concludes with Chrysalis. The finale brings a lot of story threads to a head and sets up new ones for the upcoming season and it does it wonderfully. It's a great season finale that works on every level, from production to performance to script to direction and it rewards patient viewers. Its only downside is behind the scenes reshuffling but that's hardly the fault of the episode. The first season of Babylon 5 does not deserve its reputation as a dud. Whilst the CG is dated nowadays, we have to look at that as a product of its time and also weigh the cost of doing it this way versus the cost-prohibitive use of models in the 90s. Now, I'm a firm proponent of models. I still think that stuff like UFO and Space 1999's effects look far better than some modern CG stuff. But without this cost-cutting measure, Babylon 5 wouldn't exist. It also proved groundbreaking in its use of CG, leading to people like George Lucas looking at what the show was achieving. As with any show, it needed time to find its feet, but after a not-bad pilot and a ropey first episode, Infection, one of the worst shows of the run, was filmed first, it really didn't take long at all to discover its voice. It's definitely not one of those shows that you hear about all the time. Oh well, it gets good in season three. I have neither the time nor the patience to indulge in that filth. It was also really good at balancing its social conscience with entertainment, rarely being preachy or off-putting, a lesson Supergirl would do well to heed. It was balanced as well. JMS is a self-confessed atheist, yet the show's approach to faith, spirituality and religion was one of the best in-genre telly. Of course, many of the plot threads raised in Chrysalis were ultimately abandoned or transferred to other characters, as Michael O'Hare departed the series after this episode. Rumours abounded about the whys and wherefores, with Jerry Doyle being particularly scathing about his co-star. O'Hare gave an interview to Starlog magazine shortly after his departure was announced, and seemed in good spirits. However, following O'Hare's death in 2012, aged only 60, JMS finally broke his silence on O'Hare leaving, and the reasons why. Apparently, O'Hare suffered from a serious mental illness that brought about paranoid delusions and erratic behaviour. It was agreed he would leave, and O'Hare and JMS agreed to keep this a secret so as not to adversely affect his career. He would be replaced by Bruce Boxleitner as Captain John Sheridan, a far more traditional leading man being all tanned skin and white teeth. Whilst in hindsight it's easy to see which of Sinclair's plot threads were ported over to Sheridan and Boxleitner is perfectly fine in the role, I missed Sinclair. His more cerebral approach to command, his thoughtfulness when dealing with problems and his dedication to finding amicable solutions all stand out as the character traits of a decent man, something we could do with nowadays given what currently passes for politicians. The show would go on without O'Hare, and in many ways would go from strength to strength, but it's hard to say it didn't lose something with the departure of its leading man. Time has not been kind to Babylon 5 from an actor point of view, and watching it nowadays feels very much like watching Dad's Army in the 80s. He's dead. He's dead. Oh, he's still alive. In addition to O'Hare, Jerry Doyle, Richard Biggs, Stephen First and Andreas Katsoulis have all passed on, all of them far too young for a show as comparatively recent as this one. Ultimately, the common belief that Babylon 5's first season is naff is something I vehemently disagree with. It very much seems to come from lazy TV critics who can't actually be asked watching the thing, or are settled into the internet hive mind as being truth without substance. Is it perfect? No. But for a time, our last best hope for intelligent sci-fi telly was one place. 
Babylon 5. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind, ten years after the Earth-Minbari War. The Babylon Project was a dream given form. Its goal, to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5. Welcome back. As this episode is being recorded pretty much hot on the heels of the last episode, there is no email feedback today. However, in the interim, I have seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the recent animated Spider-Man movie released by Sony Productions, who seem to have finally got a handle on how to handle, see what I did there, the Spider-Man franchise. Uh, with the live-action portion being ported over to Marvel Studios, because they've got a better handle on it, Sony have developed a absolutely blinding piece of animated filmmaking that looks spectacular, sounds spectacular, and, perhaps most crucially, corrects every single problem I had with Miles Morales as depicted in the Ultimate Spider-Man Miles Morales omnibus that I covered in the last episode, I think it was. It depends how these get released and what order they get released. Um, In this movie, Miles is front and centre. He's the star of the show, as he should be. He isn't an adjunct to Peter Parker's story. He's from frame one of this film. It's a story about Miles Morales. He has a personality in this film, something sorely lacking in the comic books that I covered last time. His supporting cast, his uncle and his father in particular, are fleshed out and developed, not so much his mum, which was a shame. It would have been nice to see Rio given some development, but she wasn't. But Jefferson and Aaron are both fleshed out admirably and are a significant part of the overall story. Everyone else in it, from Spider-Gwen to the two different Peter Parkers that will appear in this film, to uh, Spider-Man Noir, which beautifully voiced by Nicolas Cage, to Spider-Ham, who has some of the funniest sight gags in the film, are all, again, in orbit around Miles, and it's Miles' story. If I have a complaint, it's that Ganke does not get a single line of dialogue in this movie. Miles' roommate is not seen very much, and when he is seen, he doesn't speak. Now, whether was that now whether that was, sorry, because Marvel's Spider-Man Homecoming essentially stole the character of Ganke and used him for Ned Leeds, and they didn't want a similar character. 
uh, or whether they just didn't really have the time to develop that relationship in a movie that is already two hours long. Um, either one of those is possible. To be honest, given that it's dealing with alternate versions of characters, having a Ganke who is similar to Ned Leeds in Spider-Man Homecoming probably wouldn't have made that much of a difference. Uh, the animation is fluid and spectacular without. I didn't... Throughout, I did not watch it in 3D because I can't be asked paying the extra money, quite frankly. Uh, the score is great. It's all really well put together and solves every problem I had with Miles as a character. With a bit of luck... This will be one of the first instances where I actually approve of Marvel nicking from the films to incorporate into the comics. And hopefully the new Miles Morales series will have this Miles Morales in it. Um, he has hobbies. He has interests. He has a personality. He has lots of joie de vivre. He's beautifully portrayed on screen and in voice. Uh, and I haven't looked up the actors for who played who. So let me just scroll through IMDb. Uh, Shamiek Moore. I apologise if I pronounced that wrong. He does a brilliant job. Likewise, Haley Steinfeld is excellent as Spider-Gwen Stacy. Just being Spider-Woman in this particular iteration. Which makes a bit more sense than being Spider-Gwen. Because I've not read the Spider-Gwen comics. But that kind of gives it away. Uh, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin of crime is the villain, uh, beautifully brought to life by Willie Scheiber. Uh, also, Tombstone is uh, is the Kingpin's um, main henchman, so it was nice to see him get an alliance share of the action. Tombstone's a brilliant character, both visually and, and personality-wise. He's a great character in the comics. I'm surprised he's not been used more, to be honest with you. And all in all, it's, it's a, a supremely entertaining slice of animated film and uh, based on this I think Sony should concentrate on making animated Spider-Man movies and leave Marvel to produce the live action ones because this was much better than the recent live action versions of Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 although they had the merits they weren't um, particularly well thought of by the fan base one thing I did find interesting about this is the opening of the film I felt very definitely takes place in the Sam Raimi-verse. So that first Peter Parker that's uh, in the film, is it felt very much to me like he was a, a follow-on from the, the Peter we saw in the Miles Morales stuff. And it's a shame they couldn't get Tobey Maguire back to voice that, because, you know, looking at his IMDb, he doesn't seem that busy. Uh, I believe that was Chris Pine who did that voice. So Chris Pine's notching up quite a few appearances in franchise pictures with um, Wonder Woman and Star Trek and, and now the Spider-Man verse. So basically, what I'm saying is that this is well worth your time and money to take a trip to the cinema to see it on the big screen. It really is an entertaining movie and it does Miles proud, as well as doing the legacy of Peter proud, as well as featuring a lot of lovely little in-gags for fans of the comics. Uh, a strong recommendation. I don't think it was a five star, which a lot of people have been saying, but it is very definitely a high four and hugely enjoyable movie. Probably my favourite of these animated movies since um, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Which, um, if anyone knows me, I think Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, Mask of the Phantasm are previously the best of the animated films, and this is now up the top three with those two. I thought it was uh, a really great piece of entertainment and visually very spectacular anyway that about wraps it up for this time thank you very much for joining me 
as usual. This is a, a two true freaks presentation. Pop on by the web page, click on the Amazon link while you're buying all your Christmas presents, and we get the kickback that allows us to carry on making this kind of content. If you like this kind of content. If you want to email me about anything that we've covered recently, hey kids comics at virginmedia.com would be the way to go. Uh, I'll be back next time with my annual Christmas episode, which will be another commentary, probably. Um, we're going back to Star Trek. We've already covered the cage, so we'll be going where no man has gone before. That's next time for the Christmas episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. See you next time. And remember, it's all going to be okay. Okay.